and welcome back to Butter With That. We are jumping into a new theme this week. Uh, today, I'm joined by Sam, Christine, and Dave. Uh, before we jump into our new theme, how is everybody doing? Um, I think my headspace can really be, um, like, you can really understand it based on what I've been watching, which is episode after episode of Hoarders. Um what christine have you been watching hoarders too i watched an episode that really stuck out in my mind it's the uh couple from st louis uh and it's season three you know continue sam we can talk about this later no, no, no. listen it, it has opened up a whole a whole avenue of possibility in my oh mind. my god it's you know, there's a part of me that feels like really disgusting because I'm watching this and being like, I am just like watching people's trauma and mental illness and like getting something from that. Uh, but it's also been like uh, motivating me to like get rid of some of the stuff. I feel like I am like a ticket and a half, like punch away from becoming a hoarder myself. Cause like, I notice that I like keep, I hold on to things like, you don't know when you'll need it. Cause you know, like we're, I'm a teacher. So I'm like, I'll never get this again. No, throw it out. That's what I've learned. All the old iPhone cases that you can't part with for no reason. Not even the cases, but the ones that it comes in. Oh my God. Everybody's got one still, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I've never owned an iPhone, but it's the comparable Samsung um, <laughs> accoutrement. But Sam, on the topic of hoarders, yeah, this show is, is definitely 100% exploitive entertainment and it it's like you got to have a sit down with yourself and being like yeah what am I to make of all of this um but I guess I have to watch more episodes because I only watched one and this was so intense it was like trying to build this metaphor for like the house representing the this complete collapse of this of this family and familial secrets and uh, yeah, all this trauma. And it's like, I really hope they have like experts supporting these people through this show. I didn't really see much evidence of it, but it's, it's definitely uh, fascinating and disturbing. Yeah. And it, it really is all based around trauma and mm. it, it's usually like a divorce or death. And, and, and that makes me feel like disgusting and dirty too. Cause I'm like, Oh God. But there was this one particular episode that stood out for me too, where this woman was just like her mother, she and her mother were like both hoarders and they were like hoarding feces. And it was so, so bad. And finally, when the people came in, they were like, you can't stay here. This house has to be demolished. And it was like very clear that this woman didn't understand why it was a bad thing. And everyone like collectively, the family, the people who are running the show were like, we need to find her a place where she can get like assisted living because like, she just doesn't even, she can't like take care of herself. I just, I just wonder how people are processing what's happening to them with cameras in their faces. And I guess that gets to the root of like so many docu-series that deal with any elements of, of trauma and people being the focus of these particular stories, like sort of reconciling with themselves what's happening, trying to uh, figure out, yeah, their, their interpersonal relationships with other people. But like, I just... 
watching this episode definitely also reminded me of like, how do you process what's going on when a crew is around you? And like, yeah. Um, yeah. But. Is it building empathy or is it being exploitive? I, I don't know. Maybe it's both. Anyway, no more about hoarders. The big questions. <laughs> Can I ask one question about hoarders? Yeah. Was it the um, A&E version or the one on TLC? Uh, well, so what I've been doing is just going on YouTube and mm-hmm. watching just kind of what it gives me in my feed. <laughs> so I've been like watching the um, the A&E hoarders. Mm-hmm. But I've also found this one um, from England. And I actually prefer this one because one, they're shorter. And two, you don't see the people who like created this hoard. And they're like, yeah, they, they've, they're not, their trauma is not a part of it. You just like see the aftermath, which I don't know, makes me feel like uh, like moderately better. Uh, still nasty, though. I have seen many episodes of A&E Hoarders, and I echo everything that Sam and Christine, you were just saying about feeling empathy, but also, are we, is this good? Is this the right thing for my headspace for the to be put out into the world? But definitely an interesting watch. Uh, I, I watched the first, I guess, two episodes of Annie Murphy's new show, who was Alexis in Schitt's Creek, um, called Kevin Can Fuck Himself. Um, very... I'd never heard of it until just some friends, you know, recorded it and then we put it on and it kind of like is a blend kind of like WandaVision of like some, like it's like three camera sitcoms. And then it goes kind of like to the real world that um, Annie Murphy's character lives in. And then whenever the like man child husband's in, then it's in like the sitcom format with like the laugh track and it's very dark, but also very funny. So I'm very excited to see where um, the show goes. And Annie Murphy's a great actress. So awesome to see her headlining. A brand new, uh, and it's on AMC Plus, and I guess AMC as well. So I don't know how I'm going to watch future episodes, but uh, whenever I can, uh, definitely interested in season one. Well, I've been busy uh, watching a whole lot of different things, but uh, what's really had my attention and held my attention over the past couple of weeks has been um, a book called uh, Werner Herzog, A Guide for the Perplexed, which is... Um, just sort of this uh, lengthy series of interviews where he's just given sort of like one broad and general question and then talks for like several pages telling like all these insane rambling interconnected stories that are really incredible. And it's just such a really captivating insight into not only such a, such a really like unique and, and storied filmmaker, but also just a tremendously thoughtful and interesting human being uh, full of a lot of quotes that are just loaded with all sorts of, simultaneously pessimistic and optimistic uh opining about any given subject and about the nature of film the nature of nature all all sorts of just really amazing quotes one one of which i have here which is uh and you know the whole book reads in his voice so you might as kind of well deliver it in as close an approximation as you can look into the eyes of a chicken and you will see real stupidity it's a kind of bottomless stupidity a fiendish stupidity they're the most horrifying nightmarish creatures in the world <laughs> and uh it's chock is there full an of, audio uh, is there an audiobook version of this i don't think so if there was i uh i gotta i gotta check now that would be amazing yeah, and he does he all the voiceover for all of his films in all languages so maybe he would do it i don't know but at any rate if you're a fan of his um in any regard even just a fan of him his, as an actor because he appears in mandalorian and uh jack reacher <laughs> among other places but is also just a tremendous talent as far as a filmmaker and just a really captivating uh orator and just uh 
Yeah, I don't know, almost like film philosopher. So it's it's been really great to read. And it's been a really like confrontational chattering of uh the concept of film analysis and criticism itself. So it's it's an interesting one for uh for us, I guess, in particular, but I've really enjoyed it so far. Whenever I think of um Werner Herzog, I always think of him the Mandalorian and he goes, I want to see the baby. And all the memes yeah. that have just popped around around all that. He was and great his, in season one. And his insistence that um baby Yoda actually be a puppet. Because at one yeah. point they were throwing around the idea that it'd be CG, and he was just like, "You are cowards." <laughs> <laughs> I think it's literally what he said. Yeah, that's. Um, there's a lot of great moments with him behind the scenes for the Mandalorian. Christine, have you been watching or reading or listening to anything cool? Um, I I watched uh, Doctor Sleep the other day. Um, Let go. Nice. Yeah, I mean it was it was pretty good. I I, I don't think I like like was in love with it but I think what I really appreciated was that it handled revisiting like the shining material in a way that I feel like thematically had some really great uh messages and like uh how like in 40 years later however uh long later like 50 years later how are characters uh dealing with trauma and how characters who have the, the, the steam, the shine connect with one another that like, I love, um, uh, Kubrick's, uh, the shining. It's awesome. It, uh, tonally it's so horrifying and is a work of art, but, uh, I also think that it, it leaves some questions, open about like how like characters connect with one another. And I think Dr. Sleep does a wonderful job of like building the relationship between uh, Danny and Abra, who's uh, the young girl who has the shine and like builds that theme of, of their relationship and like what it means to have the shine is not just having superpowers, but like building actual community and connection with other people, which I don't think the original shining really dealt with and and maybe that wasn't the intention of the movie but I think thematically I think the movie revisits material really well I, I think it was a little bit like long mm-hmm. and I really I like Rebecca Ferguson hell yeah Mission Impossible I did not like her as a villain in this movie she was like uh, had this like agree. Jack Sparrow get up thing going I wasn't into it but all that to be said, like she gave a great performance. I think the material she was working with was not great, but overall, I, 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 I really, um, I really liked the the relationships that were built in the movie. Um, that I think were great extensions of the original movie and expanded it in a really thoughtful, thoughtful way. Is what I'll say. I think tasteful also how to like revisit actors and characters from such like a storied movie. That's the thing that's just the thing that I find really strange about it is that like Stephen King was Stephen King hated The Shining. Uh, He really, really didn't like it as an adaptation because of the liberties and stylistic uh, kind of like uh, flares and and adjustments and uh, and almost like full blown rewrites that uh, Kubrick took on. in, in writing the script and shooting the movie. So he really despised it. And that's why he wrote Dr. Sleep. And. You know, obviously the film 
is tonally really different as is the book than The Shining as a film. But the thing that I, you know, it, it still revisits Kubrick's Overlook Hotel. Like it's still exactly that hotel. But I guess there's no other way that you can do that. So I don't know. It was just uh, just because it has become such a cinematic touchstone. But yeah, I don't know. It's it's a weird double bind. I'm sure that Stephen King finds himself in at least. That's a, I, I didn't, I don't know a whole lot about, I haven't read the original Shining. I haven't read Dr. Sleep. So I don't know also how the movies depart from Stephen King's intentions. Um, I would say for like the material, the movie seemed very like PG, yet you have disturbing yeah. child torture and death in the movie trigger or like content warning. But like it's, but it handles it in kind of like, I don't know in like not a dark, I don't, I don't, I don't quite know how to articulate my kind of weird feelings about it, but. Christine, did you watch the uh, director's cut or the theatrical release? I don't know. It was whatever was on Hulu, I think, mm-hmm. or I don't know. It's, it was long. Well, thanks for sharing what uh, we've all been watching and checking out. Uh, now let's dive into our brand new theme. This month we are talking about, Robots. Uh, they are they, they're in disguise. They rock and sock them each other. Robots do many wonderful things, many terrible things, many scary things. And today we are talking about one of my favorite movies about robots, and that is Brad Bird's 1999, The Iron Giant. Uh, I'm not sure if we've actually mentioned this on the podcast, but pretty much since the first couple months of Butter with That, I've been angling to do The Iron Giant. <laughs> theme and so my time has finally come summer of 2021 is the summer of connor because we are talking about the iron giants connor has tried to squeeze the iron giant into genres that are clearly not um uh like touched on or or presented in the iron giant i think you tried to do this for food and family i will fight that the iron giant does belong in food and family because there is plenty of food of robot and human variety and the movie is all about family and found family yes yes uh so has anybody this was a really important movie for me growing up i remember watching this on television all the time uh has anybody have any of you guys ever seen the iron giant before recording this sam hasn't I have seen it before um and uh yeah really enjoyed it as a kid so it was uh was interesting going back to it I had seen I have seen it before. It had been a while. It had probably been like what twelve or fifteen years. Um, so it definitely there were things that I didn't remember. So it was it was a a wonderful return. Yeah, I hadn't seen it before, but I have seen um, gifts of it used online for years and years and years. So it was nice to finally ah, that's where that's from. That's that scene. Yeah, there's a couple memes and things. I think it's, and this is something, you know, I put in my notes, but I feel like this movie was such a commercial failure. Like it doesn't get much more of a bomb than The Iron Giant, but I feel like because of syndication and it is just such a great movie, it has really lived on. And I feel like folks our age, um, and I'm curious to see how relevant The Iron Giant is over the next, you know, 20 years since it came out. Uh, Let me just give a bit of an overview of what is The Iron Giant in case 
you listener are unfamiliar with it. Uh, it was released on August 6, 1999, with a budget of 50, or some people have also reported $70 million, which for an animated feature film is on the much lower side than what is usually seen. Uh, and it only had a box office of $31.3 million. It only made about, I think, $25 million in the States. So a huge disappointment. It was directed by Brad Bird, who would go on to direct the first Incredibles and Incredibles 2, Ratatouille, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, and also Tomorrowland, which I've never seen and I heard is not that great. But The Incredibles, Ratatouille, Mission Impossible, these are all really great movies. So Brad Bird definitely has a really fantastic filmography. Uh, and fun fact that I learned, he is also an uncredited animator on Fox and the Hound and The Black Cauldron. So someone who has been working in animation for quite a while. And those two have some really great animation in them. So that's really telling. Mm -hmm, for sure. Uh, this is written, uh, the screenplay was by Tim McCanley, McCanley's, and he has not really done much aside from write Iron Giant, and he directed another movie, uh, with story credit going to Brad Bird. Uh, this is also a film based on a story called The Iron Man by Ted Hughes, uh, who actually wrote the novel for his children to comfort them in the wake of their mother Sylvia Platt's suicide. Um, so part of the inspiration for Brad Bird wanting to do this movie is because his sister was killed as a result of domestic violence um, with a gun. And so it's sort of interesting how this really sentimental movie sort of has a lot of emotional weight in suicide and in violence, um, some of which sort of comes into play throughout the film. Uh, it stars Jennifer Aniston, Henry Connick Jr., Vin Diesel, Christopher McDonald, um, just an all-around great voice cast. Mentioned a few times how it was critically acclaimed, but an absolute failure at the box office. On Rotten Tomatoes, it sits at 96% on the tomato meter with a 90% audience score, with the critical consensus being the endearing Iron Giant tackles ambitious topics and complex human relationships with a steady hand and beautifully animated direction from Brad Bird. Um, I found this really interesting quote in relation to its failure at the box office. Lorenzo D. Bonaventura, who was the president of Warner Brothers at the time, explained, people always say to me, why don't you make smarter family movies? The lesson is every time you do, you get slaughtered. So this was, you know, Warner Brothers was trying to compete with Disney and DreamWorks in the animation space. And so, you know, this movie really hoped that it would kind of help kickstart things. They did a release a movie called Quest for Camelot, which was also a huge box office failure. And so it seems like some lessons were taken from that movie and Iron Giant as well about what sort of movies um, yeah, Warner Brothers should think should be released. It was also released, uh, and this is attributed to it's uh, part of its kind of box office failure, was that it was released also the same day as The Sixth Sense, uh, which became, you know, a huge phenomenon. And... You know, I think, uh, I don't know how convinced I am of that being the the key factor and the nail in the coffin for this movie as far as that goes. I don't think, you know, that really intense PG-13 horror movie had a lot of competition with, uh, you know, with this G movie, this G animated movie. But um, but yeah, I think it was probably a, a failure of marketing that probably killed this movie. Another kind of reason I, I saw as well was that there wasn't a whole lot of like tie-in with toys and other right. big media, which Disney was doing, you know, so many others. And so I think, you know, interesting that there's not really one clear cut reason. Sometimes movies just don't connect with audiences at the time or the month that they are released. Mm -hmm. um, so let me just go over just a brief synopsis of um, 
the Iron Giant. So set in the cold during the Cold War in 1957, the film centers on a young boy named Hogarth Hughes, uh, Hughes being the last name of Ted Hughes, who wrote the novel, uh, who discovers and befriends a gigantic metallic robot who fell from outer space. With the help of a beatnik, quote unquote, artist named Dean McCoppin, Hogarth attempts to prevent the U.S. military and Kent Mansley, who is a paranoid federal agent, from finding and destroying the giants. Uh, thematically rich, the Iron Giant puts a lens on Cold War paranoia and fear and examines how the choices we make should determine how we are judged, not how we are made. Um, the core part of Brad Bird's pitch to Warner Brothers was, quote, what if a gun had a soul and didn't want to be a gun, uh, which is a line very similar to one um, that is said in the movie. So that's sort of the big overview of the Iron Giants. Um, what were sort of your guys' thoughts on revisiting the Iron Giant or kind of seeing it for the first time? So I guess we'll start with Dave or Christine. What was it like going back to the Iron Giant? Um, yeah, I I loved rewatching it. And I think this time around, uh, I was kind of thinking about like, why use, why use animation to tell this story? And I, I really like how the movie kind of creates this contrast with the duck and cover animated uh, animations actually from the 50s, which I, I love that the movie shows the kids watching in the middle that really kind of were trying to help children sort of digest and uh, understand this constant threat of like nuclear disaster, but in a in kind of a in effect, like ineffectual and like sort of flippant way. Whereas this movie uses animation to essentially help children or like to sh show a story that is children trying to process the fear of techn the technological unknown with actual emotional nuance and complexity. So I, I really kind of liked that juxtaposition in the use of animation, the way it was used in the 50s uh, with like kind of, sinisterly chipper duck and cover tunes to have children attempt to process what was going on and during the cold war and this movie which actually wrestles with like deep emotional feelings of of anxiety and from that building like strong relate like this idea of children building strong relationships with what's initially an unknown, which is the Iron Giant. So I, I really liked that. Concept. I really love what you just said about all the, the use of animation. And I never really quite thought of it in, you know, the 50s animation. Now that's blown my mind. Um, one just quick note that I wanted to throw in there since we we're just talking about animation. Uh, according to the trivia, this is the first traditionally animated feature film to have a major character or the title character who is fully computer generated. Um, which is not something I, I realized when watching it or, you know, until researching it for this episode. Yeah. It also at the time was uh, kind of the the industry standard for uh, an animator to be assigned a character throughout the entirety of a film. But the way Bird set it up was that each animator uh, animated a scene uh, instead. So that that made for an interesting approach. And that's something that's used a lot more often now, especially with character models and stuff. It was also... Um, 
I don't know how familiar you guys are with like the, the animation process as concerns like frames per second. Um, you know, there's 24 frames per second. So uh, there's animating on the ones, which means you make 24 drawings per second, which allows for the most fluid range of movement. Um, there's also shooting on the twos, which is every 12 seconds a change of, uh, of image. And that's how this was shot. But yeah, also utilizing a whole lot of uh, a variety of different like CG techniques that um, that utilize like cell shading and, and really stand pretty convincingly alongside the hand-drawn animation within the same film, which is really, really impressive. Uh, I found it, yeah, visually to be incredible revisiting it. it. I remembered it for its visual kind of grandeur and like stylization, um, which I was really glad to revisit because I, I appreciate it even more now. It's It's truly impressive. And I also think it's a really complex movie that conquers a lot of different themes um and handles them very well especially for uh, a kids movie it, it reminds me a little bit almost like of like the don bluth uh disney renegades who were like trying to make something a little more confrontational and a little it gives kids a little more credit um than, than the larger disney works that were coming out at the time so uh i think they they really took a, a very heartfelt stab at something here and it really lands in most regards so yeah for me it was uh it was really nice to revisit definitely i also after watching, um, you know, at Secret of Nim all those years ago, definitely felt a bit of that Don Bluth sort of energy um, throughout this film as well. Uh, Sam, as a first-time Iron Giant viewer, uh, what did you think? Um, I think that, like, generally, I'm bummed that I'm watch that I watch this movie now as as a 30 year old woman and not when I was like eight or nine years old, like sort of like the prime age, because I think that I would have been able to give this movie a, like a, a fairer chance, a fairer shot, because I just like found myself being annoyed with myself of like why I couldn't get into the movie or like stupid things that I apparently took issue with. Um, like in particular, when Hogarth first sort of meets the robot and is like teaching him English and he's like, well, this is a rock, this is a tree. And then he keeps like yelling at the giant, like you, you have to stay here. Like you can't go home with me. And it's like, well, you were just teaching him these words. Like he doesn't understand. Like, why did I care about that? Like truly, why was that a big deal? because you're a good educator and you know that any good educator would never do that <laughs> thank yeah. you christine for giving me more credit than i think i deserve <laughs> in that regard um so it was nearly impossible for me to get into but that doesn't mean that it's like not a good film i think like i really did appreciate the um the the art style um i had a conversation with a roommate who was like i hate the art style but i don't know i found it like to be really interesting so um at at least that i really enjoyed thanks for sharing sam there were definitely the some of the for me some of the nostalgia goggles did come off a little bit for some parts of the movie especially when it comes to kent mansley um who's a character that we'll dive into there's some choices there that i and some questions that I feel like we'll we'll dive into, but I just um, wanted to open up with why did I choose the Iron Giant? Um, why did Robots Month feel the month where finally it was like landed, it connected? Well, not only does it sort of center on this robot as the titular character, but I think this all, movie also does a really great job of kind of tackling a lot of the questions that appear frequently in sort of robots movie, you know, robotic movies or movies with machines. What is it? What does it mean to have a soul? Can a robot have a soul? Um, defining humanity, um, a machine's role in the world, 
um, destiny versus, you know, programming. So I think this movie for a G rated movie, Dave, I'm so glad you brought up that point as a first and foremost, a kid's movie, family movie. I think it really successfully hits on a lot of those themes. Also watching it this time reminded me a lot of ET and going through some of the production notes. Um, that film really was, uh, inspiration and also something that was used to sort of inform some of the choices that were being made or not being made um, as this movie was going on. Um, I also just think the Iron Giant has such a cool design. I remember having, I don't know where I got this toy, but he was maybe about like six inches tall, like a little Iron Giant figure. And I just felt always so connected to this movie, to this um, creature, this robot. And so I was really happy that we could kick it off with this theme, kick off the Iron Giant robot robots theme uh, i also did just double check it's pg oh pg um, so my, my mistake yeah that makes a little more sense there are some sort of intense kind of scenes throughout it um you know he is a giant weapon and i think what really this viewing drew me into it was its place in the cold war and as an adult who knows more about the cold war now and more about that you know red scare and paranoia I really thought this was sort of an excellent, I don't know if allegory is the right word, but a way to sort of explain what is paranoia um, and how does it affect the decisions we make? How is fear, you know, what do fear informed decisions look like? And I just think, you know, this invader, an invader coming from outer space just also fits so perfectly with the comics at the time. Uh, which is a really great idea to set this piece during the Cold War. And there were also calls, you know, Warner Brothers initially wanted to have this movie set in the modern day. And so there was a lot of back and forth on when this movie should be set. And so I think uh, Bird and company made the right call of setting it during this time of intense American and global paranoia. Any sort of thoughts on, you know, the Cold War setting or setting the movie during this time? It is a really fascinating choice because, you know, if you're making a movie geared towards children and you're like, yes, the cold war, um, you know, it's not necessarily something that like my mind immediately jumps to, but I do think that it, I do like Connor, I think you and Dave, like both mentioned that like kids are smarter and can handle like more complex things. And so, you know, these themes exist always not just like cold war but this general distrust and always these big two opposing forces so weird flex but i think like ultimately it makes sense i don't think i when i watched this as a kid had no i can say a hundred percent i had no context to understand the larger sort of global implications of this being set in the cold war i i was like oh yeah it's old timey that's cute but I think the themes still resonated because, yeah, as Sam was talking about, it's like, how does one navigate the fear of the unknown? And how does, and as you were saying, Connor, how does fear, how, how does it like shape our decision-making in, in poor ways? And, and also it's an adventure film. It's a, it's a, uh, a friendship film. And so, yeah, those are the things that resonate as a kid. And then I think as good animated movies do, it has a little bit of something for everybody, for people that understand the context. They're like, oh, well, I can now un like be thinking about the story in its sort of time period and sociopolitical uh, framework. And an adult can be like, okay, this gives me more meaning. And maybe at the time in 1999, you know, adults were watching this thinking 
about their childhoods during that period, um, possibly. But yeah, I had no, I had no context to be like, yes, <laughs> Cold War. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess that's obviously, yeah, something that you know becomes a dawning realization with age if you grew up with the movie. But I, I mean, yeah, I think it's themes uh, as as you've alluded to really kind of transcend different genre or different generations and can be related to by a lot of different people, even, even in a post cold war era, you know um, I think it's themes even for children are pretty digestible, but I also think there's this beautiful, like um, there's this kind of stylistic merger of setting and it's, it's visual representation in animation specifically, like uh, the, the art direction of this movie is so, so unique. It's really like, it's, I, I only I've only seen one other movie that looks like it, and it's Eight Crazy Nights, the Adam Sandler Hanukkah movie, which is awful. I, I feel like this team got shoehorned into making that somehow after this or something. I don't know, but but at any rate, this was like largely like you know Disney had gobbled up a lot of animators. DreamWorks was starting to bring a lot of people into their poll, so I think it, it was it it was kind of this across the board dedication to making it visually representative of like like almost like children's books or children's entertainment of that era of the late 1950s visually uh, and exploring it through, you know, characters that navigate that with a kind of cultural self-awareness that we have now after the fact, you know, via parody of that era or, or satire of that, that era and in terms of its themes. So I think visually it, it really enhances uh, its place in time and, and the story and its themes because the robot, while looking otherworldly, very much looks like a, the kind of robot that you'd see in sci-fi movies or in sci-fi comics of the 1950s. So I think there's this really great harmony of um, yeah, of storytelling and its visual representation as hearkening back to that era in terms of homage and stylistic inspiration. I think especially in the interior scenes, the angles, I noticed like the kitchen, like the house uh, and the kitchen specifically, the angles and the colors, the check. Uh, the checked floor really felt like like a Tom and Jerry uh, hmm. cartoon of, you know, 60. I don't know what the dates of that particular animation would have been, but it really, it felt kind of like old style animation and yeah, reinforcing that sort of period and and context. Yeah, and not in a way that like you know I don't I, I don't want for that to sound as though it cheapens it like I don't I don't want it to sound as though this is a movie that looks like it was from the 1950s. It's just it takes all of this really well developed um, kind of like CG merger and cell shading kind of animation, especially at a high animation rate per frame, and, and really yeah it takes a fam- the the familiar like characterizing aesthetics of that era, but updates them through you know current animation technology and. And really does an impressive job of creating something that harkens back to that, but is also stylistically impressive in, in the now when it came out. And there aren't too many like animation bells and whistles. I have no mm-hmm. vocabulary when it comes to really talking about the, the different uh, aspects and nuances of animation, but it really feels visually simple, but like in, in a really effective way. Something you mentioned in your notes, Connor, was the the film's uh, depiction of the the sheer like so, like sheer magnitude and size of the Iron Giant, and I think I totally agree. That's something I had written down as well when I was watching it. That you really don't need if shots or if frames are set up well. You can use a simple animation style and render this really awesome giant 
in a way that really uh, contrasts the size between the Iron Giant and the kids and the people around it. And like against the backdrop of the trees, the sky is so beautiful and magnificent and the, the colors, the tones. Yeah, I, I think that it in a really simple way uh, conveys really the like visual, important visual points, which is this giant is fucking huge. And in certain scenes, he looks like something to be feared. And then the movie does a great job of switching gears and showing the tenderness, even while he's huge. <laughs> yeah, especially initially, because he's, he's seen as sort of this like really like trudging kind of like very mechanical movement force. Um, but then, you know, the the moment that um, Hogarth meets him after that first initial encounter, there's this. <laughs> like he's mimicking Hogarth's movements and it starts becoming a little bit more like, you know, uh, it, he becomes like a little more physically communicative and more animated and more a character rather than what we imagine a robot to be, which is what we get at the very initial onset. So it's, an, it's you know, it's a nice way of uh, introducing characterization and and the character of the giant itself with those expectations that it moves just like a giant robot initially, but then it has this nuance and this tenderness and this warmth once it finally gets to know Hogarth and so on. And those friggin' eyes, the movie just nails the eyes. Like mm -hmm. when, like, yeah, as you said, Dave, the switch from sort of this menacing mechanical figure to this, this new friend who's mm -hmm. tender and compassionate and the eyes, in a, and again, once again, a very simple way. And I know Pixar has fucking nailed eyes as well. But while Pixar, I feel like, sort of nails this like weepy, tender, I don't Gloss, know, something glossy. very glossy. Yeah. yeah. You're like, Oh, it's like a cat. eye, or like this sort of puppy dog, animal, like weepy eyes. This rendering of eyes is pretty simple, but really, really effective uh, in the different colors and uh, shapes and angles of the, of the like robot eyebrows. <laughs> And I feel like it's with the eyes and this also ties into, I put in my notes, this idea of like lighting. I feel like that's where the real bells and whistles come in um, with kind of these animation techniques. The lighting in this movie is just like fucking impressive of how like shadows work and light coming off of the TV as well, like throughout different scenes, um, scale, Christine, you brought up, like there's just so many good tricks of how um, light can be used to show danger or show friendliness. Um, I'm, think a lot about the scene of where we're sort of first being introduced to the iron giant and uh, i mentioned this to you dave um maybe like two weeks ago of how there's like a little bit of some horror movie elements in the first half of this movie of where we really don't quite know the iron giant's deal he's this you know this meteor type this creature crashing in from outer space uh the ocean just looks phenomenal because we're introduced to sputnik flies by iron giant clashes in and then there's a sailor who's just on this you know i don't know if a hurricane's a hurricane's coming through and the lightning just looks fantastic and then you know he sees a light thinks it's a lighthouse turns around and then instead of one light you see that it's two eyes shining through the distance and that it turns out that's the iron giant and there's a lot of i feel like really great reveals of the giant hiding in the forest and turning around or these really wonderful moments of surprise and um, terror is not the right word, but I guess like anticipation or tension building of what is this creature? What does he do? Which culminates when Hogarth um, kind of tracks him down to this power station because the robot, you know, the giant, he eats metal to sustain himself. 
clamps down on this power station and just electrocutes himself. And I think that was just a really kind of wonderful scene. And then that scene ends with the giant looking in his eyes, you know, looking down at Hogarth as his mom picks him up and drives away. So I think the beginning of this movie does a really great job of kind of creating this aura of mystery around the giant. Um, what is his goals? Who is he? And I think the beginning of this movie also does a great job of introducing who Hogarth is. We talked a lot about this movie sort of being focused on kids. And I think Hogarth, he has a, a very silly name, but I think he's a really great audience surrogate for kids watching this movie. And we learn a lot about him very quickly. Uh, we're introduced to Hogarth and his mom. His mom works at mom's Annie works at this diner. And so he comes running in, uh, claiming how he found a new animal. We learned that he's very, you know, a new pet, like a squirrel that he wants to keep. We learned that he's resourceful, brave, loves animals, cares for things, has a lot of love and also has a huge imagination. So for a movie that's about, you know, just a little over 90 minutes, I think the script does a really great job of building in all these really great character moments. And right from the first 20 minutes, I feel like we, learn all we need to know about who Hogarth is, who Annie is, this kind of single mom house situation that really can just, the rest of the movie can just launch off from to, you know, huge successes. Yeah. And it's a really good use of time because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't do the whole thing where it explains to you like, oh, Hogarth, Hogarth's mother is a single parent and this is why, and all, all these other reasons. It's pretty much just understood. And it's, it's stated through like, you know, what we see the characters actively doing. There's uh, his mom has to work, this double shift and she's just like well you know there's chicken in the fridge go ahead and make that and like you know he's like oh no problem mom and he whipped creams puts more whipped cream into a twinkie than there already is which is like obviously you know there's there's something of a routine here in the sense that like she's she often has to work late he's often on his own um that's his opportunity to really indulge in watching like sci-fi movies and stuff and really embrace his passion and like comics and things like that so it really does a good job of yeah setting setting the stakes and and stations of these characters really well without without wasting time with you know what what a lesser movie would otherwise clog with expository dialogue or, or scene setting it just kind of like lets us lets that information reveal itself in a more lived in and more like day-to-day slice of life way and i believe there's only one mention of the father who i don't know if annie says he died in the war or he died you know he died in some service but we also and then the only other times we see a photo of his dad we assume as his dad standing next to an airplane, like an mm-hmm. air, you know, like a jet um, on his nightstand. So I think tons of really great world building. And I just wanted to say, I love the like fake movie, the fake B sci-fi movie that's playing where it's just like yeah. brain in a jar. And then it's like the scientist guy is like making out with the hot lady. And it's like, Oh, let's get out of here. But then the jar knocks over the brain turns into this giant creature. I'm just a sucker for like fake, like going back in time, like making fake movies or fake shows. The delivery of the character where he's like, oh, no, it looks like the brain has fallen on the floor. (laughs) I must go check it out. (laughs) How about a nightcap at my place? (laughs) (laughs) It's like like nice bad acting from the 1950s. Definitely. And I mean, that's, you know, that like uh, like the duck and cover footage that we'll I'm sure we'll discuss is and have hinted toward already is, you know, so baked into the 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 sort of self-awareness of it as something set in that era. But, you know, far and away different from those things in terms of its its kind of quality, but also in the sense that it's got bigger things to say about, you know, what a monster is or what, you know, what we should or should not fear and things like that. 
yeah, does a great job of introducing a lot of the themes and, you know, character work that's going to happen over the you know, rest of the movie. Uh, at the beginning of this movie, I also want to bring up that we are introduced to Dean as well, who is, uh, as everywhere I've read online, describes him as a beatnik, which I didn't realize is like an actual term for somebody. Um, Wait, really? <laughs> I, I, I knew that it like was a term. I just didn't know exactly the cultural significance. Yeah, it's like a whole genre of fiction. <laughs> right. So I learned something new in the research here. Yeah. Um, so Dean, voiced by Harry Connick Jr., I think, I don't quite know how to feel about this character. I really like him, but I think he plays every, he's, he's a very cool cat, very cool character. Yeah. Um, but in the beginning at this diner, he's just chilling there, drinking his coffee. Um, and he tries to like cover for Hogarth when his pet squirrel runs up his leg and the mom is like, you seen the squirrel? So I think he's a very, uh, right away we learned that he's this caring character. Um, I don't know. What are you guys thoughts on Dean? I kind of have a hard time kind of describing him as this sort of like, he says, am I a junk man who makes art? Or an art man who sells junk, which I think, you know, he runs the scrapyard. So I think that kind of sums up how he feels about his predicament in the world. I don't know. I like I was I'm not a big fan of Dean only because it feels like this. I mean, this was 1999 and Harry, Harry Connick Jr. was a shining star mid to late night. Everybody wanted Harry Connick Jr. on their <laughs> project. So I feel like they wrote Dean. Now, I haven't read Ted Hughes's story. But I feel like they wrote this character for Harry Connick Jr. because they're like, well, we got this star to do this voice of this character. So now we got to, like, make him, like, a cool jazz guy because it's Harry Connick Jr. And I was like, this, I don't know. It felt like a throwaway character. I'm being mean. He's His friendship with Hogarth is really wonderful. He plays a pivotal role. I just was laughing the whole time because I was like, Wow, remember when Harry Connick Jr. was a thing? <laughs> I mean, I, I do see where you're coming from. It does feel like it's written for written with him in mind. But I think that's just good casting. I think, you know, it, it, I don't think it takes anything away from it that it's a great part for him because I think he does a great job with it. And I also think it's a great character. Like, I, I like at the beginning how, you know, he's not only set up as uh, as compassionate and, like, empathetic to other people in terms of the squirrel, uh, Hogar squirrel running up his pants and him trying to be cool with it initially, which is his whole vibe, trying to, you know, keep everything, you know, cool and, and relax for everybody. And, you know, he's beat Nick or whatever. But um, but also what we get too is like um, M. Emmett Walsh's character, the sailor, who's now in the diner. M. Emmett Walsh, by the way, is great. Uh, but we, we get M. Emmett Walsh's character talking to these guys about what he's seen. And he's just like, they're all, you know, chastising him and calling him like, an idiot or like a drunkard or a fool and dean is immediately like quick to pipe up for for no reason he has nothing to gain from this but is quick to be like hey you know i saw it too and you know that and then when hogarth asked him if he really saw it it's like no of course i didn't see it but you know if we don't defend the crazies you know who will which is very much the beaten kind of vibe so like i think it's very appropriate throughout the movie i was harsh i'm gonna <laughs> step back <laughs> on my ripping on Harry Connick Jr. Yes, you make some very compelling points, Dave. He he's he's a really uh compassionate and I think that he's a wonderful mentor to Hogarth as far as demonstrating compassion and ex- aside from some key moments where he's about to kick the iron giant out of his junkyard, but generally he he's a good he's a good friend to have. And yeah, it's also a thing where we kind of see Hogarth. It, 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 this movie is really beat by beat feels very Spielberg to me. 
Not in the least of which, because, you know, there's an absent father and the Hogarth, the child being raised by a single mother, and he's interested in sci-fi and everything else. But at the same time, too, like, you know, he, he kind of comes alive and comes into his own. He can be he's more expressive than he is with his mother about his interests and about his enthusiasm, especially as concerns the Iron Giant, which he has to keep secret uh, with everyone but Dean. But, you know, Dean kind of steps in as this father figure or like mentor. And yeah, that that relationship kind of blossoms in a way that allows us to see Hogarth open up a little bit. And I think the yeah, I really enjoy the relationship between Dean and Hogarth uh, for all the reasons you guys brought up. I just love how Dean also, I feel like, works as part foil and part friend throughout the movie as well for Hogarth mm-hmm. of sort of like, well, I don't want any responsibility with trying to take care of this Iron Giant and then ultimately trying to help him, but somewhat keeping Hogarth at kind of arm's length. So I think there's a really interesting relationship between Dean and Hogarth and Dean sort of going through his own little change of saving Hogarth and you know, ultimately, you know, trying to be the hero of the day, which happens much later in the movie. Uh, but we haven't really gotten into the Iron Giant sort of himself and interacting with Hogarth. I think one thing I really liked about this movie kind of revisiting it was it feels like it starts with the stakes being very simple of Hogarth finds this Iron Giant creature. He's amazed by it. Um, and then he tries to, you know, he sees it. He saves him in an act of huge act of bravery of turning off this malfunctioning power station um, to save this robot. So just showing us once again, how much empathy Hogarth has for other creatures and other beings. Uh, And so it kind of feels like, and then the maybe next 15, 20 minutes of the movie are him kind of like hiding the creature, like he would hide the squirrel or hide a dog from his mother. Some great bits of physical comedy where he, you know, kind of tracks the robot down again. Uh, The robot kind of follows him. Iron Giant follows him because he kind of gets blown up by this power, uh, the power center. And then the hand is sort of crawling through the house as Hogarth and his mom are trying to have dinner. Um, Some real, you know, great bits of physical comedy. And so it's sort of stakes feel kind of small to establish in a good way, kind of Hogarth's relationship with this robot, how it's going to build from there. And then Kent Mansley comes in and the stakes get ratcheted up to literally nuclear levels and you know, world <laughs> devastating levels. But I really appreciated how the movie starts small and then kind of slowly beat by beat ratches up the tension um, to then literally being a you know climactic world threat where the U.S. government is going to nuke this town in Maine to try to prevent the Iron Giant from destroying the world because they don't know, you know, Kent Mansley says we can't, we didn't build it, we can't trust it, so we have to destroy it. And he is a very interesting character as well to be thrown into this movie equal parts creepy terrifying and also cowardly um and he kind of throws an interesting wrench into the film i'm gonna follow this up i'm gonna follow my (laughs) criticism of dean with i thoroughly enjoyed kent mansley as a as a villain and i Mm -hmm. thought that christopher mcdonald's voice work is so good like i've I loved Vin Diesel's voice work as the Iron Giant, but I thought that um, Christopher McDonald was kind of like the standout performer as far as like voice work for the whole movie. Um, Yeah, I mean, some of the things he does are so fucked up and I don't think would be in a kids animated movie now, but... He drugs, he like roofies Hogarth. Chloroforms, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ru- some rough stuff, but uh, but uh, but a, a good, compelling villain, uh, and I thought a great performance. 
Yeah, and occasionally humorous too. So it's not as though he's just like a true menace. There, there is comedy to the way that like Hogarth shuts him down on occasion. Like you know, he sneaks him like what is it, a chocolate laxative on his Sunday. So we see him throughout his investigation, like having to go to an outhouse, wrapping like squat in the bushes. So like the whole time he's he's doing these things, and he's just like you know antagonistic force in the movie who's unraveling the mystery of everything and and picking up the pieces that Hogarth has frankly left right for him. Like this, his name is written on everything that he leaves in the woods, but just, just seeing him tease all of it out uh, while also being, while being, you know, a menacing force in a sense, but also being humorously diffused, I think was a really nice touch for the movie. And there's a bit of a home invader element as well, because, you know, we talked about Annie, his mom uh, has to work, you know, double shifts at the diner. They have a room for rent. And so Kent Mansley kind of hears about, he doesn't ever say what government office he's from, but some that investigates, you know, in, you know, intergalactic or mysterious objects. The X-Files. The X-Files, basically. I was like, it definitely was an X-Files feel at the beginning of this movie when he comes in. He's like, I'm the one to figure out the town's secrets. You just, you know, sit sit back, watch me do my work. <laughs> but that's not really even his attitude. He rolls up saying like, someone's like, something big's happened here. And he's like, this is a small place. Big things happen in big places. And oh, he's yeah. so condescending. So like, yeah. that's part of it too. Yeah. I mean, he's like definitely a- self-inflated ego. And then when he kind of gets on uh, the trail, figures out, realize, because Hogarth leaves his gun, you know, his BB gun in the woods after he saves the Iron Giant. Only part of his name, it's like Ho Hugh, like the H O and the H U G, Ho Hug or whatever. And then I, I love, I don't know, it's like a great kids' movie moment where um, Mansley keeps like mispronouncing Hogarth's name. He's like, it's Hogarth Hughes. And then he's like, Hogarth Hughes. And then the gun is like right next to his car. It's like, it's Hogarth Hughes, not Ho Hug. Um, just some great, I think, comedic moments. And then he and you know, pays rent to live in his home to kind of unravel this mystery, um, which was kind of terrifying. Just always up in Hogarth's business trying to figure out the mystery of this Iron Giant. Eventually, Mansley finds the photograph later in the movie that um, Hogarth took of him and the giant together. And that's the proof that he needs to bring Washington in. Washington in. And so I think it was really great. What I liked about Mansley's character is someone who just feels really desperate for approval. Um, someone who's craving sort of this promotion, who's craving more, um, someone who's very desperate. And I think this is a great situation to throw a character like that in this town that's sort of just ready to boil over. There was also like some nice Dr. Strangelove vibes where it was like chain of command, like who has the authority to say and authorize what? And mm-hmm. um, so I liked those sort of elements as he's on the phone with his big boss in DC and especially towards the end uh, where they're trying to figure out the Iron Giant's intentions. It's do we, you know, s- say go on the missile or do we hold back and wait? And so, yeah, I thought it had a nice sort of hearkening to uh, other big name nuclear disaster movies like Dr. Strangelove. And I'm glad you brought up the idea of like, what are the giant's intentions? Because he conveniently and fortunately sh- suffers from amnesia. Uh, when he lands, he has a big dent in his head. 
uh, doesn't remember what his purpose is, doesn't know what his true powers are. And I just love seeing the giant learn from Hogarth, this sense of humanity. I think this is an incredibly charming, also sort of like sentimental movie. There were numerous times where I was sort of tearing up uh, throughout the film. Uh, this one scene in particular, as you know, the giant's hiding out at the scrapyard, and so Hogarth keeps going to visit him. And so he's sort of teaching him about the world. And when they're in the forest, they hear a gunshot. And so, you know, they kind of see what was going on and they reveal that it was two hunters who killed a deer, a deer that they were just interacting with moments ago and teaching about life and this creature and how, you know, life is precious. Uh, one of the hunters goes, it's the monster, you know, and they run away. And this just made me think of, you know, we're like, who is the monster? Is it these hunters who took an innocent life in this deer or is it this giant robot that has tons of weapons and is clearly, as we learn later, a weapon of war. Uh, Hogarth then has to teach the giant what death is, um, which is a, such an emotional scene. And the gun then triggers some sort of internal programming. His eyes go all red and he sort of loses himself and just oozing with foreshadowing of what's to come. And then Hogarth says, and, you know, it's like the monster basically asks, is it bad to die? And Hogarth says it's bad to kill, but it's not bad to die. And so going back to this idea of like thinking about what can kids handle in a movie? Um, I just love that a movie like The Iron Giant is dealing with so many themes. And then in this moment, talking about death and killing just sort of really hits to the core of why I love this movie. Um, later on, this is sort of tied into this. They're talking about a soul. And it says, you know, Hogarth says, you have feelings and you think about things. So that means you have a soul and souls don't die, which I think is such a, I'm getting chills just sort of thinking about that scene now. And so I think it's this great seeing moments of the giant learning. What is it like to be on earth? Uh, how can he interact with these people? Because time and time again, Hogarth tells him you have to stay hidden. Um, there's this awesome scene of them running through the main sort of countryside and then they get to the town. It's like, no, you're not going to be welcome there. They're not ready for you there. And so, Every great moment of learning also comes with some foreshadowing or kind of some moments of tension or kind of upcoming dread because clearly, you know, this giant robot in this town, you know, things just are not going to go well, especially with Mansley eventually inviting and, you know, convincing the army to come storm this town. Yeah, this movie is such a great example of as, uh, like a lesson to like screenwriters of planting and then harvesting your themes, like really making sure that you've sown the seeds for this being drastically and thematically important later, not only in terms of it being, you know, effective foreshadowing, but in terms of being a reward that is earned because it doesn't, it's not a left field turn in terms of your theme. It's not in a last minute edition that, that makes your film uh, some uh, <clears throat> somehow sermonizing or something. It, it's all sown into the character and situational establishment that we've seen so far. And once again, just as many elements of the animation are handled simply, the narrative is, is pretty simple, but in a way that really drives home the, the moments of emotional impact and without having sort of the distraction of like really random side plot points and things like that. As Dave said, everything is is set in place and then set in motion in a way that really builds to a pretty precise finish narratively and like thematically and, and emotionally. Like I feel like if maybe if this 
story were handled today, there would be like a lot more different elements going on. I don't, I can't predict that. Josh Gad would voice the Iron Giant, not Vin Diesel. (laughs) (laughs) But I feel like there would be attempts to build out some other elements of the narrative and make it more complicated than it really needed to be. Right. It's a movie that I think it allows, especially in the middle section of this movie, it allows a lot of breathing room for his obstacles and for each individual obstacle, like whether that's uh, him having to reassemble himself, whether that's them walking toward the town and not being able to go there, whether that's the giant suddenly being hungry and how do they solve that? They go and they meet with Dean and so on. So like it really allows a lot of time for for obstacles that might otherwise be written in as just sort of like escalating distractions instead of it being all sewn into a grander structure thematically. And not needing to over-explain things. Dave, you had mm-hmm. mentioned the, the not need to over-explain what happened to the father. The same elements of not having to over-explain why the robot only eats metal or mm-hmm. where the hell the robot came from. It's it's like, it's a wonderful balance of suspension of disbelief, but also building a narrative that doesn't require the audience to want to know that or like to to feel the need to have additional information to care and invest in the characters. Yeah, it's very economical in terms of the way it uses its screen time. And I think grounding, you know, we talk, you know, acting and, you know, all about choices. And I think having the big kind of thematic question be a choice in and of itself. Are you going to choose to be a Tomo the Destroyer or whatever that robot, you know, the comics character name is, or are you going to choose to be Superman? And then building that into, you know, the theme informing how the script works and progressing from scene to scene and examining a movie about examining choices works really well in a screenplay. So Mm -hmm. it's just a really great economy that, Dave, I love economy of time in the screenplay. So I, I kind of wanted to get to sort of top of the end of the movie um, where things have quite literally almost gone nuclear. Mansley has the photographic proof that he needs. Um, the army comes in. Uh, John Mahoney, I believe is his name, uh, who plays Frazier's dad in Frazier, um, mm-hmm. a legendary actor, rest in power. And he does such um, a great job of this. It's perfect casting. Mm-hmm. Today he'd be played by Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> Well, I, that might be okay too. But hey, I love okay too. Tommy Lee. Don't come out. I was not a diss on Tommy Lee Jones. I was just. <laughs> and so the army's in there, and there's one of the funniest scenes that Mansley feels like he has all this proof. He's been trying for days, maybe even weeks, to like assemble the proof that the Iron Giant exists. And then it turns out that one of the funniest parts of the movie that Dean, who is a scrap collector and makes art, uh, disguises the Iron Giant as just his new installation, which humiliates Mansley, gets him basically fired. Um, And I just love how this movie can have moments of where you're talking about the soul and do souls die? And then also moments that have either very physical comedic beats or just very funny situations uh, that our characters are put into. And so for me, that's just one real comedic standout moment toward the end of the movie. And then from there, you know, the giant kind of wakes up, stands up, Hogarth and him are sort of playing. And then we've learned quite a few times that guns trigger the giant, which no no other human characters know. And so Hogarth has this kind of like sparking toy gun that shoots sparks at the iron giant, triggers this sort of death mode. Uh, shoots this huge laser at Hogarth, who's looking at the gun, not paying attention. Dean tackles him out of the way of this laser, calls the giant, basically calls him a monster. He almost killed Hogarth. The giant is distraught with himself. Who knew that a character that only says 53 words uh, (laughs) can have such emotion and such uh, depth of feeling? And And it's a nice logical turn for Dean, too, jumping in in that way. 
which stands at odds with where we think the story is going. Right. And then that informs because as the giant runs away, he runs toward the town. Army's driving away. They see the giant running and Mansley, the government, you know, the army, they're like, oh, we got like this thing's real. Drive into town to get him to chase him down. Dean gets on his motorcycle, zips down the road uh, to try to save him. And then there's, God, I just hate Mansley. So conniving <laughs> because uh, Dean and Hogarth are at the town square, you know, at the center of town, trying to, you know, help the giant giant picks hogarth up wait can i just say one thing so before this mansley has told the general that the iron giant has killed hogarth or that he he killed a child and even before that actually what what brings the giant into town because the giant is just walking off after dean has like shouted him away and like you know he's just he's just going about he's just going to wander the world it seems and is really distraught and then he hears the screams of two boys that are watching him from like a high building in town and they both slip and they're about to fall off this building when the giant himself then reveals himself trudging into town and saving the both of them. So he's already like shown his heroic side and his, you know, compa- capabilities for compassion and jump like coming to the rescue. Uh, Although everyone in town takes it a little bit too well that the giant robot just rolled into town, even though he saved two kids. Like everyone's just kind of staring at him like, whoa. I think people can only process like huge traumatic moments, like one bite at a time. So it's like, (laughs) oh my God, these kids are saved. My brain is processing what is going on right now. It's going to handle the fact that there is a 60 foot robot in a moment, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I think that's just sort of the town. That's a, that's just human uh, <laughs> processing capabilities. And so that shows us the audience. He does have this heroic moment. He saved these two boys, the army Mansley. They're not really hearing any of it, uh, especially Mansley, who is now sole focus in life is to destroy this creature. Um, and he actually tells the military that the giant killed Hogarth, lied, told Dean mm-hmm. that, you know, he'll take care of it. Oh, I'll, I'll take the, you know, call the army off. Lies to say that, because um, the giant, I believe, has Hogarth in his tender metal grip. Um, <laughs> and then tells the army that the giant killed Hogarth, killed this boy, and that we then have to go after him. They summon the nuclear submarines. As we've learned before, guns and use of force, he's a defensive, you know, his programming is based on defensiveness, which Dean tells the military. Um, and so I think his, what I would call his like final form, like his Dragon Ball Z, you know, final form has this amazing, like all these lasers coming out of him, these huge weapons. He shoots this plasma ball just out into the ocean, uh, which almost destroys the nuclear submarine in this huge, big explosion. And as a like eight, nine, ten year old, that was like one of the coolest things I feel like I could ever see in a movie. It's just this giant robot just shooting all these lasers everywhere. And as an adult, now really appreciating um, the design of this creature, of this robot. And in this moment, you know, as he has Hogarth, he also learns that he can fly like Superman, um, which is, you know, a character referenced quite a bit throughout the film. This iteration of Iron Giant feels very 1999. It was nice that they, like, like maintained the sort of 50s look of him throughout, and then they were just like, hell, this movie was made right now. Let's have some, mm-hmm. like, like snake beams coming out from the back of his head. We're going to have some swirly chest things going on. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because the apparently the, the, thing, the tentacles that kind of rise out of his head when he's in defensive mode were inspired by War of the Worlds. 
Oh, all right. Well, I'm I'm just shooting from the hip here. I don't know. <laughs> I don't have any context. It felt okay. The re- okay. So I've got the Matrix on the mind, and it, the 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 thing, the protruding cobra heads look very much like the machines in the Matrix. That's why I was thinking 1999. Sure, but. I mean, I do look really love. I mean, obviously, the scene where the reveal, waiting halfway until this into this movie, or over halfway until it's like a, a crisis where he's under attack to reveal that he can fly is so awesome. Like, it's so cool that that's not alluded to elsewhere in the movie before this, because then we get Hogar shock, as do we, almost almost as does he, the giant, with the delivery. You can fly, you can fly. And then he just soars and it's, it's really awesome and really touching. And then, but also when he switches into defensive mode, because then he shot down while flying and he thinks Hogarth has been killed and is looking at him almost in the same way that he looked upon the the deer that was killed with the gun and then is being fired upon. So there, there's the gun that killed Hogarth, he thinks. And that's when he switches into defensive mode. And when he switches into defensive mode, I really like the character design because you don't see the giant's head. It retreats into his chest. So he becomes the weapon that we don't know him to be. You know what I mean? In this full-blown Ooh, that's defensive a great, That's a great detail, yeah. So, like, the, like, his capability of processing has just been, like, sort of put inside of his body, and now he's just on automatic machine mode. Right, and it doesn't feel like it's his decision even to switch into defensive mode, his programming. Yeah. yeah. Which is contrary to the... the the more tender and like learning being we know him to be throughout the movie. And then of course, at the end of the movie, we have the act of ultimate sacrifice um, where the iron giant, you know, ballistic and inter an ICBM intercontinental ballistic missiles launched to nuke this town because man, you know, the generals like we're calling this off. The kid's still alive. Well, yeah. Okay. Sorry. My favorite line in the entire movie is when they realize that Hogarth is alive and the general's like, what the fuck? You said you lied to me and said this kid was killed by the Iron Giant. And Mansley just goes, it's a trick. Fire the missiles. <laughs> I was like, this is a line. If I want to back out of anything or like, or no, if I need to get my way in any situation, I'm just going to yell. It's a trick. Fire the missiles. Just my, well, yeah, my favorite the fact line that, in the whole movie. And I love that moment because the fact that somebody can just yell that to a nuclear submarine, like any like any person can grab that and yell that and trigger apocalypse. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and it's horrifying. It's an but, extremely. Um, it's very strange. Love. Like there's even yes. a line that the general says, you know, "What you want us to bomb ourselves in order to destroy the robot," which is like a total strange love, like nuclear era kind of mentality. And there's an interesting moment of resignation with the town. Or like yeah, the characters yeah. of like when they're faced with uh, like a total annihilate, like about to be completely <laughs> annihilated. It's just everything is just like, oh, uh, well, it right. almost becomes like Whoville. Like the, I expect them to almost just like, ooh, like parents hug their children just a little bit tighter, but like <laughs> not in a brace embrace of fear, but just kind of like resignation. <laughs> and like, then the oh. duck and cover video is kind of brought back up like, oh, should we find the fallout shelter? Should we cover? And it's like. The general's like, those things don't work. Yeah, and even Dean. Like, I like how That's the such adults are, like, aware that, like, th- no, this weapon's too powerful. We're all going to die. And so the giant realizes that he can fly. He can, you know, save this town. And a moment that still makes me weep is when he's flying in the air to intercept this missile as it's in space. Um, you know, he utters to himself, Superman. 
uh, in that great Vin Diesel voice and then yeah. collides with the missile, taking it out. Um, Especially because he's chosen Superman instead of Atomo. Atomo. He's chosen not to be a gun. The whole theme of the movie, you know. And he saves the day by flying, not by shooting. Right. Which is something I never quite, as a and, kid, thought about. And through selflessness instead of aggression. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we get the reveal. You know, some time passes. They build a statue to the Iron Giant in the town square. Dean and Annie are now together, as most of those mo- you know, these movies end together. Sure. Um, and so then we get the great reveal. So throughout the movie, we see that the robot can put himself back together. Uh, the government, for some reason, sends a part of the Iron Giant to Hogarth, which they would never do. That would be under, like, <laughs> right next to the, you know, the, um, the Ark the of the Ark, Covenant. Yeah. <laughs> In a different Spielberg movie. Top di- men. <laughs> <laughs> but they sent him just a little screw that went into his jaw. Uh, and it's the same piece that hit Hogarth's shoe the first time he was putting him back together. Right, which is so put- good. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's this blue light, it's this beeping. Hogarth, you know, like the piece falls and he like wakes up. Where's the piece? You know, the box is empty. And then it's just lightly tapping against his window, showing that this creature, you know, the iron giant, he is still alive. Opens the window, the piece tumbles out. We fast, you know, fast forward to, I, I believe it's Iceland, the Arctic, and he's putting himself back together and his eyes open up, which was not originally how the movie was going to end it, end in the sort of like planning phase. Um, and then, one of the, I believe is the producer said, well, you know, you don't kill E.T. at the end of E.T. So I wanted to, you know, there was a thought that there should be a hopeful ending instead of a purely, you know, sacrificial or, you know, dead, deadly ending. This is the part I didn't remember. I remember the Iron Giant always blowing up, like, or like just disappearing. I did not remember this last scene. And I was like, was there ever like a version that was released without this piecing him back to... Uh, yeah, I was like, oh my God, he's actually alive. That was like a big moment for me in a no rewatch. <laughs> and I think a great ending to a kid's movie to end on this hopeful note of he made the ultimate sacrifice, he made the correct choice, and yet, you know, he can still go on. I don't know if that choice would be made if this movie was released in 2021. I think, you know, of its time and place, I just really love, you know, I think The Iron Giant just works so well on so many levels. And I was really happy to discuss one of my favorite movies with y'all. Finally, after all these years, <laughs> bringing it to the group. Um, as we're sort of wrapping up, any final thoughts on The Iron Giant, things that worked or other questions you have or maybe thing beats that didn't quite hit? I mean, I'd say, you know, to no- people making kids movies, you know, take note here, uh, you know, the not only planting and harvesting themes, you know, a consistent presentation of escalating obstacles that all contribute to the story, transformational character arcs, uh, criticism of U.S. international paranoia, and believing children, and and trusting that children can handle this kind of material or or more uh, thought provoking or you know mortally uh, critical um, material. I, I I think they I think Bird and his team really trusted their audience. In a, in a way that a lot of people making movies for children nowadays and before this didn't. And I think it's a real credit to that team for making something that I think that's that's part of the reason it has such a powerful nostalgic resonant connection is that it's something that I enjoyed as a kid because it was something that I thought presented me with a lot of themes that I could think about, but allowed me to grow into develop it or to 
grow into appreciating and unpacking those themes while still having a nostalgic connection to the movie. So yeah, a, a pretty great job all around. I'd say that uh, especially, especially fledgling screenwriters could really take a note from this movie in terms of its its pacing, its its rollout of obstacles relating to and escalating the narrative and character choice and uh, and its themes. So yeah, thumbs up for me. I'm still just like really disappointed that I couldn't get into this movie, especially like listening to you all talk about like, some of the the really emotional moments, but it has made me think a lot about how animated films are made today. I mean, we've we've talked a lot about like, well, if this movie came out in 2021 and like how different would it be? And I just can't help but wonder like, what were my parents thinking about when I was watching these animated movies as a kid? And like now as an adult, how how do the movies that are coming out now compare to that? Like, I can't help but think about Coco and like how taken I was with that movie. Um, and I was still able to like connect and really like it at like 28 or 29 um, versus a movie like this that, you know, sounds like it was really impactful, but I wasn't. And I think that is a thesis for me to do on my own at some other point in time. But still, I think that, you know, that's an interesting conversation. Like, can there ever not be an audience for a movie? Yeah, I mean, that's interesting, Sam, too, especially because I think a lot of Pixar movies now, like Coco, as you described, and pretty much their whole catalog, are movies that are, and to their credit, really impressively simultaneously written for children and adults, which is a huge part of their charm and why we, you know, people our age have a nostalgic connection to them, even though they're still rolling out, you know, and, and still we, we have that immediate association as, adult, as adults. And um yeah, I think maybe it is, I don't know if it's nostalgia or, or, or what it is that that maybe is missing uh, in the conversation on your end, having experienced it now for the first time. So yeah, I don't, I don't know if maybe that's part of it. But but yeah, I, I mean, I think the movie does right to both adults and children, but maybe it is one that is a little more weighed by nostalgia than that kind of more thorough and obvious incorporation as, as things we see like with Pixar. And that's why I enjoy having multiple people on a podcast to hear all these sort of different opinions about what hits, what doesn't hit. I think that only enriches every episode. Yeah. I will say, I think what Coco does really well is integrate the element of family bond uh, and like learning from family about themes like death and sort of generational difference and things like that. And one thing I was thinking about watching the iron giant is we don't get a whole lot of moments of sort of moments with Hogarth and his mom mm -hmm. that are focused around both of them processing what's going on together. Yeah. And a lot of times the mother serves as sort of the like, sort of as a plot point or as a Hogarth, come here. Hogarth, don't do that. Hogarth, do this or do that. And so it's like, I think that building out her character a little more and really focusing on the the sort of mother-son relationship could have maybe expanded that possibility of like family thematic elements uh, that that possibly that could be missing. But um, yeah, that was definitely something I was thinking about. And now that you brought up Coco, I was like, oh, but Coco did family really well. <laughs> it's funny you bring up Coco because that's the movie I chose over Iron Giant for that theme. Yeah, and there was an episode also ages ago where we talked about what we would have swapped, and you su you suggested you would have swapped this one for Coco mm -hmm. at that time. 
So yeah, interesting. Yeah, both. The, I mean, both those movies resonate. You know, got interesting thing about yeah the family connection in Iron Giant. I wonder, you know, thinking about it now, what how much of Dean's story the mom could have been a part of or replaced with Annie. I think definitely um, Annie is a sort of missed opportunity. And I think a movie that generally treats its characters very well is a missed, missed potential. I think that may be part of what reminds me of Spielberg work too, in a way, is that, you know, oftentimes it is uh, a single parent child that is our, it's a child of a single parent that's our focus, um, who finds surrogate parents other, other than their one parent who they they find themselves more activated by and invested in and so on. And, you know, oftentimes the parent is a little more sidelined in, in Spielberg stories a lot of the time. Um, and I think that that rings true here to a degree too. I think there's definitely a lot of missed opportunities in that regard. I don't know what it, what I would have added necessarily, but I would have appreciated more. Uh, although I, I don't know offhand what to ask for. And that's not to say, I mean, it's like a movie doesn't need a completely like strong relationship of a son and a mother. Like, Mm-hmm. No, I feel like there's a lot of possi- like narrative possibility in portraying a son that seeks mentorship and family outside of like the rela- like the one he has with or like relationship he has with his mother. Like that's like like ripe with possibility. Maybe it's maybe for me it was maybe understanding who the mother was a little mm. bit more and I mm. she seemed kind of one dimensional. Yeah, I agree. I agree there too. But it was it was fun to see Jennifer Aniston do some voice work. Like, has she done anything like any other animated stuff? I think she's done some voice acting here and there. Yeah, she's uh she's holding it down in this movie, given what she's yeah. has to work with. But she it was a very uh, a, a fun little uh, and at the height of her powers. Yes, indeed. Ninety well, nine. Was... Something like that, right? That's that was Friends ish, right? That was Friends era. Yeah. Yeah, she rode that wave. I mean, she's still riding that wave. She is excellent. She is excellent in *Were the Millers*, that movie with Jason Sudeikis. She is excellent in that movie too. Hey, I loved *Murder Mystery*, Adam Sandler's movie. So, <laughs> thought she did really well. All right, I'm sidetracked. I'm sorry. Well, so there, Very there focused. was one fun fact that I wanted to bring up that I'd be kicking myself if I didn't mention it. Originally, *The Iron Giant* was conceived of a musical. Mm-hmm. Um, Pete Townshend of The Who was originally supposed to develop it as a stage musical. Uh, he did make a concept album called The Iron Man, which is a lot like Tommy. Um, and <laughs> at least it's just a lot like Tommy. At least in the procedure. In the credits right, right. is The Who Pete Townsend as yes. executive producer. Yes. What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, and he apparently loved the, mo- the, the you know, eventually producers were like, eh, I don't think this is going to work as a musical. Um, let's turn it into an animated film, which is, you know, how the, it became part of Warner Brothers and Brad Bird in this movie. Uh, apparently, he said he really liked the movie, uh, thoroughly enjoyed it, and when asked about, like, oh, do you regret, you know, or any you know, questions about that, he's like, well, I got paid, so the movie was great. <laughs> I still got paid. <laughs> I Plus did... They would, they would have had to change it so the Iron Giant does a windmill guitar swing several times as well. <laughs> um, I did scrub through the Iron Man concept album, and it it is what it is. I, I guess I'll leave it with that. <laughs> uh, later, whose stuff has been a rockier. Yeah, you know. Um, but I just think, I didn't know that until I was doing you know, research for this. And I thought that was, I would love to just open a window into an alternate reality where there was a stage musical of the Iron Giant. Um, I would love to just get a glimpse of that and then return to my reality. Uh, on that note, I mean, really quickly, they also at one point wanted this to be set in the present and entirely set to, as you mentioned, but also entirely set to hip hop. 
sidekick so, like, dog as well as like right, a, a and, wacky and character a sidekick dog and yeah but like i i do really like that it, it's set and it's in, not only set in the era for all the reasons that we've discussed but uh that it utilizes music of the era as well and like there it doesn't rely on any kind of musical numbers or, or any kind of like overall themes really necessarily it's just you know it's a score and there's a bureau of music which is really nice and the sound design is great the the before it's clearly vin diesel <laughs> saying words i thought the sort of like the boom and the mechanical sounds of that were like coming out of the iron giant's mouth were really effective and like, yeah, just like booming. Uh, and I loved the Yeah. The score was great. And the restraint of this movie, not going for the brain. I am Iron Man. It's like kudos for not going the easy route with that kind of garbage. It was restrained. Yeah, you're right. It was it was used uh, sparingly, uh, but effectively. And I'm so glad there was no sidekick in this movie. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of those animated bells and whistles I could just do without. I mean, okay, I'm making sweeping. There are so many sidekicks I love, but in animated I say, movies. I, could, but I can see Sam Disney thinking thing. about Miko. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it didn't need it. He didn't need that raccoon could or not raccoon that squirrel at the beginning of Iron Giant could have turned into a sidekick and it was not. I mean, because because then you risk going like the Ice Age route where like the like the squirrel <laughs> is like a weird part of like the whole narrative. You don't need that. Yeah, it just becomes some weird like interstitial for no reason. <laughs> well, I think that wraps up 1999's The Iron Giant. Thank you so much, everybody. Listeners fellow hosts on talking about a beloved childhood classic of mine. Sometimes these are some of the toughest movies to revisit or to talk about or to plan out. Um, but I had, I thought we had a great discussion. I really enjoyed hearing your thoughts on it. Uh, listeners, be sure to let us know what you think of the iron giant. Do you think it belongs in food and family theme? Was I right? <laughs> and was I persecuted incorrectly uh, all those years ago? Uh, be sure to let us know on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at butter with that. Uh, butter with that podcast at gmail.com and we are also part of a wonderful podcast network movie john uh j-a-w-n uh many wonderful podcasts on there be sure to check them out um and let them know that we sent you if that's how you stumbled upon them uh anything else you want to plug or discuss before signing off tonight i mean as far as uh plugging goes you know expect more robots in the next uh <laughs> coming weeks so we have quite a uh, quite a lineup of robot movies that I cannot wait to compare and think about and dive deep into, and I think our listeners will thoroughly enjoy that as well. That's a hell of a selection. I'm looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. I can't believe we haven't done robots before, so I'm glad we're here. <laughs> All right, we'll have a um, have a wonderful whatever. I believe is our catchphrase, right? Uh, have a wonderful whatever. Enjoy listening to this at any time of the day, morning, dusk, or nighttime, <laughs> and. Um, Have a have a good whatever.